um, about my student loans being canceled. <clears throat> I have a, an Ephesians 3.20 to go with that. Apparently, they decided that I made too many payments, and so they sent me $1,600 back. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you not only have forgiven $22,000, you have sent $1,600 back to me. Praise God. He's good. He is so good. Yeah, really. Absolutely. Yep. Praise God. I'm ready whenever you are, Mary. Okay, well, thank you for joining us tonight at River Church. Um, I'm going to be bringing the message. Pastor is traveling, um, but he'll be back on Sunday, as far as I know. Um, tonight, I'm going to I'm going to be bringing a message from a particular book in the Bible. And in last fall, I felt called to read this particular book. I'm not one of those who can actually go through one of those read through the Bible, you know, a year list things. I don't do that well. Because I'll read and I'll get like four verses in and I'm like, ooh. And I go back and I study those four verses like for three days or something, you know. So I'm way behind. So I've just kind of given up on that. But what I try to do is I work my way through the books that I feel like I'm supposed to be in. So last fall I felt compelled to read this particular book in the New Testament. And whenever I'm, I'm pulled toward a particular book or topic, I just assume that God's saying, you need to work in this area, or that the church needs to work in this area. And I am part of the church, so you know, I feel like this particular one is kind of aimed at both. But I think it's, it's really an important one. So if you would, turn to the book of Philemon. And the best I can tell you is it's right before Hebrews. But it's actually really, really short. Um, it actually only has 25 verses verses. And when I started studying this book, I wanted to know how to pronounce it. So I went and I listened to those little pronunciation things online. And I was so disappointed that it was Philemon and not Philemon, because I thought Philemon is a wonderful southern pronunciation. But it's not correct, unfortunately. So most people know a few things about this book. It, it involves three people. It involves Paul, it involves Philemon and a runaway slave named Onesimus. But before I really get into it, I wanted to kind of set the stage for what is happening in this book. Um, one of the things we have to remember is that slavery was very common in Jesus and Paul's time. Slavery actually dates all the way back to like 3500 BC. So slavery has unfortunately been with humanity for a very long time. And all the Mediterranean countries had slaves, but Rome really depended on them more than many of the others. Um, there's estimated that there were five to 10 million slaves in the, um, the Roman Empire. At the time of Caesar Augustus, who was actually the Caesar when Jesus was born and lived, it's estimated that one in every three people in Rome and Italy was a slave. That's, that seems pretty high, but that's, that's what is estimated. And these, they came from different places. Some of them were prisoners of war. Some of them are Jews who had been taken from Israel, and they were taken as slaves. There were people who were indebted, who basically sold themselves into slavery to pay their debts. There were children who had been abandoned who became slaves. There was just a lot of slavery that was going on at the time. So the short version of what's happening in this particular book 
is that Onesimus was a slave who belonged to Philemon. Um, he seems to probably have stolen something, and he ran away to Rome. And Paul was in prison in Rome at the time. Paul actually knew Philemon because um, when he was in Ephesus, Philemon was from what we know as like the letter to the Colossians. He was from that area. Apparently, Philemon actually had gatherings in his house of Christians. So Paul was very familiar with him. And in fact, it is possible that he actually had already met Onesimus at Philemon's house before this. But somehow, Onesimus, who is the runaway slave, meets up with Paul in Rome. And it's unknown if this was in the prison or if it was some other way. But basically, Paul led him to Jesus. He got him saved. And then what happened was Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon to face the consequences of his actions. And he took this letter with him. So if you think about it, you think about Onesimus. He has escaped. He's gone to Rome. He's up with Paul. He gets saved. And then Paul says, by the way, you need to go back. And I'm sure that was a very frightening prospect for him because the potential penalty for someone who had stolen something from his master was punishable by death or by stoning or by, like, branding. All of those seem like horrible, horrible things to me. So Onesimus has to know in going back, if, if this doesn't work, if he doesn't forgive me, I'm going to be punished in some way. So Paul wrote this letter to Philemon asking him to welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ and asked him to even return Onesimus to him so he could help Paul with his ministry. So there are several points that I would like to make out of this chapter, out of this book. It seems like a chapter because it's so short. But um, I'm going to not read through it like in a whole thing, even though there's only 25 verses. I'm going to take it kind of section by section. And I'm going to look at some of what I think are kingdom principles that you actually see in this book. I've read other people talking about it, and most of the time they just talk about forgiveness. And forgiveness is very central to what's going on here. But I think also that there's a lot more. And in studying it this fall, it's like, you know, the Lord just kept leading me back to this chapter and back to this chapter. And there are only 25 verses, so you think, well, how many days can I study on this? But it was amazing. I got several weeks, actually, out of 25 verses. And I think it's because I started really looking a little deeper. It's, it's one thing to read things surface, and it's another thing to really let it sink in. And I felt like God was kind of steeping me in it for a while. So um, he gives the greeting here at the beginning. I know I've often thought that I was just going to do a study looking at Paul's greetings in his letters. Have you ever noticed how wonderful they are? I mean, they're just, they talk about so much love and encouragement, and, and it's just wonderful. Um, but here, he, you know, in verses 1 through 3, he just kind of greets him. Um, but one of the first principles that I want to talk about is how God wants us to acknowledge each other's faith and encourage one another, which is what he starts with here in verse 4. 
He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. That's very nice. Perhaps this is a really good way to start a letter when you're going to ask somebody to do something that's difficult, right? I mean, you're going to say nice things about them. But I think this was very heartfelt. He knew Philemon. He knew what he had been doing. He knew his heart. And he wanted to encourage him. Um, and if you would, to kind of hold your place there in Philemon, but if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we're going to look at that because it's about encouragement also. It's not too far away. And by the way, my primary text tonight is actually the New American Standard, so it might read a little differently from yours. But in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you were doing. So Paul says, encourage and build each other up. I think that's a real kingdom principle there. Because, you know, in some ways, it's not easy to be a believer especially in our society. You know, we are constantly being bombarded with things in society that go against God's word or things that are directly opposite. So I think that encouraging each other is really important part of the church. And I'm, I'm gonna read, you don't have to turn to this one. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, it says, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So it tells us to rejoice and be made complete, be comforted, and be like-minded, and to live in peace. All those things come about through the communion that we have with each other. So we, to be like-minded, to be comforted, that's something that we are called to do for each other. And God is moved by faith, not feelings. I think that's something we have to keep in mind. And faith is one of the most important aspects of actually being a believer. And we should take the time to encourage one another and encourage each other in our faith. Okay, moving on to verse 8. I'm sorry, I have a ticklish throat tonight. Okay, in verse 8, he kind of shifts just a little bit. He's talking about how you're, you know, you're doing a good job, you're encouraging people, you have a lot of love and comfort for the saints. And in verse 8, he starts talking about, and he says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you from my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I think it's interesting that he says, I have enough confidence, I have enough authority to order you to do this, but I'm not going to. He said, I'm going to appeal to you. And you know, this is my second principle, actually. 
God will never impose his will on us. And that's really, really reflective of that, right? He says, for love's sake, I appeal to you. And then he says, I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He brought him to the Lord Jesus, and he says, he's my child. Don't you know that's how God feels about us? It is, it is just a wonderful reflection of how God feels. And Paul feels that way. Um, in, I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy 30, 19. I think Pastor actually used this recently. And this is the one that says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. He gives us choice. He gives us free will. He gives us the ability to make a call about whether we're going to follow his will or not. He's not going to force it on us. Um, and he always appeals to us based in love. And here, this is exactly what Paul says, for love's sake, I appeal to you. <coughs> Excuse me. So if there are some people who feel like, well, if I just wait here long enough, God will come and do it for me. He's not going to do that. Those people are going to keep waiting because he will not impose his will on you. He gives you the choice. He gives us the ability to choose. And this is what Paul is doing with Philemon. It's like, you have the choice here. You can decide to do this or not, but I'm appealing to you to do this particular thing. And where he says that about um, my child, I think that's a, also another kingdom principle is that we are spiritual mothers and fathers, especially for those we lead to Jesus. And sometimes I don't think we see ourselves necessarily as that, but don't you have a special relationship with the people you lead to Jesus? I mean, there's just something, a special bond there with you. And I think Paul was saying, I have this with Onesimus now because we share this and we, um, we have a bond that is steeped in love. And so we have to remember that we are spiritual mothers and fathers. And even if we didn't lead somebody to Jesus, if they're a member of our church, our local church, we are still, we are their brothers and sisters and we are their mothers and their fathers if you know, there's somebody who's young in the faith. And we are there to help them and we are there to encourage them, just like a mother or a father would be. So I, I really, I kind of liked how he says that because it's just so reflective to me of God's love and God's heart. Um, so if you, let's see, let's move to verse 12. I've sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart and that is such a beautiful phrase. He basically says, I love this person so much, my very heart is coming back with him because we share something that is so incredibly special and I'm sending him back to you. In verse 13 it says, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything that your goodness should not be as if it were by compulsion, but of your own free will. So 
I really want to keep him, but I'm sending him back and I'm giving you the choice. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever. No longer as a slave, more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. I really like in verse 15 it says, perhaps for this reason he was party to you for a while that you should have him back forever. Isn't that what happens to us when we're saved? We were separated from God for a while, but now we're back with him forever because of Jesus. That's a great picture of that. And so he's saying, this is what I wish for Onesimus. This is what I would like to happen. I would like to have him back to help me with my ministry. But I want you to accept him back no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. And we'll talk a little bit about, more about this in a minute, but think about that. This is somebody who's been a slave in Philemon's household. But he wants him to come back and regard him as a brother. Now that takes a little shift in your thinking, doesn't it? Definitely, it does. <clears throat> but you think about it, forgiveness is a key to the kingdom. I mean, Jesus has that foundation covered, right? He took our sin, we are forgiven, so we should forgive. And as Pastor has pointed out, the kingdom is all about relationships. So we're supposed to treat everyone regardless of who they are or what they've done. So he's asking Philemon to stop regarding this person as a slave and regard him as a brother. And there is no caste system in God's kingdom or church. There's not like one person who's higher than another. We're all equals, right? And we have different talents and we have different gifts and we have different ways that we contribute to the church. But we're not to view someone based on their past. Same thing with Onesimus. He's asking Philemon, don't look at what he used to be, but look at who he is now. And this is, this is a key for the church also. We can't have somebody come into the church and say, well, now they're like this, but you know they used to be. No, it's like our past doesn't exist. God doesn't remember it, right? I mean, he says that he takes our sins and he throws it as far as the east is from the west and he remembers it no more. No more. So we have to regard other people in the church in the same way. Don't look at who they used to be. Look at who they are now and accept them based on what they are. Moving on to 18. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, who does that sound like? Jesus. Right? Jesus paid everything for us. So here Paul says, charge it to my account. So I have no idea what Onesimus had done or what he had stolen, but Paul basically says, I'll cover it. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention this to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. 
So it's like, you owe me something, but I'm not really going to bring that up. But if he owes you something from that past thing that he did, consider it covered. Just like our past things have been covered. Because Jesus did that for us. Um, this is from the Amplified. It's 1 John 2, 2. And he, that same Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice that holds back the wrath of God that would otherwise be directed at us because of our sinful nature, our worldliness, our lifestyle, and not for ours alone, but also for the sins of all believers throughout the whole world. So in other words, it wasn't just for you, it wasn't just for me, it was for everybody in the whole world who ever lived or will live or has lived. He took it all. And sin is sin. With God, there's no ranking of sin. And I think that is one of the most difficult things for humans to wrap their heads around. Because it just seems like, well, if somebody murders someone, that seems infinitely worse than if you embezzle some money, right? Because we like to rank sin. But to God, it's all disobedience. It's all sin. It's all the same. But Jesus took all of that for us. So if someone did something in their past, it doesn't matter if they have been saved. God has forgotten all that. It's all gone. It's like it never happened. Because Jesus took that for us. Even John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming, didn't he say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? I mean, he just said, Hey, there he is. That's the guy. So our debts are paid. And this is a great reflection of that. It's like, if he owes you anything, it's on my account. I got it covered. And another point is that God has confidence in us even when we're being asked to do something difficult. In verse 21, it says, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. <clears throat> so Paul's basically saying, I have confidence that you're going to do what I'm asking you to. Because... You know God, and Jesus is in you. So I have great confidence that you're going to do what I'm asking you, even though it's very difficult. And in 2 Timothy 1-7, we all know this verse, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. So basically, Philemon, don't be afraid to do what's right. Do you think that other people might understand what Philemon was doing? If he said Onesimus free and regarding him as a brother, wouldn't that be weird to other people? <clears throat> they wouldn't understand. But Paul basically has confidence that he's going to be able to do that. That he's going to regard him as a brother. So, the really big point, I think, about this book is that it's about breaking strongholds in our thinking. It's basic instructions about how to build the church, which was necessary then, but you know what? It's still necessary now. These are still keys to the kingdom that we need to practice and we need to keep in mind. But see, he was asking Philemon to do something that was just unthinkable in his time, to accept his former slave as a dearly loved brother. So 
that went against the very culture of that day. Because as I mentioned earlier, slavery was just very common. It was something that a lot of people did. They had slaves. They didn't think twice about it. It's like, what? You're going to do what with your slave? Wait, that's your slave. But we are sons and daughters because of what Jesus did and has sacrificed for us. Onesimus was saved. He was no longer a slave in God's eyes. Right? He, he was a child of his. He was clean. He was saved. He was, you know, he'd been covered by Jesus' blood. And so called for Philemon to make a real change in his thinking in order to, to actually do this. But we're called to renew our minds too, right? I mean, Pastor talks about this all the time. If you think about it, the Bible is actually kind of a really revolutionary book. If you think about some of the things that it asks us to do, it has some pretty radical ideas about love. It says, love your neighbor as yourself, right? That wasn't something that most people were familiar with when Jesus said that. It, um, it's like, I'm supposed to love those people as much as I love myself? Wait a minute, I like to put myself first. It's like, other people, you need to love them in the same way you love yourself. That's foundational for Christianity. That's a pretty radical thought, to be honest. Um, it had new ideas about sacrifice. If you think about Jesus going and taking on the sin of the entire world. That's not common in most religions, right? And not only that, he had this communion thing where he said, you know, you'll drink my blood and eat my flesh. And even his own disciples said, ooh, that's a little hard. What? I don't really get that. That was pretty revolutionary. That was really, really different. And we understand how he meant to that. But in the day, they didn't really have the concept to understand what he was saying. He had a radical idea, well, in the Bible, it's a radical idea. You give away to get more. Now, in the world's eyes, that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would we tithe? Why would we give money to the church? Why do you do that? Why do you give offerings to the church? You know, you could be using that for other things. But we believe that when we give, we receive. And there's no way we can really outgive the God. These, this is revolutionary. This is really weird for most people. Uh, the idea that if you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. People don't get that either. It's kind of like, well, I want to get to the top and I'll just knock everybody out of my way on my way up. Well, if you do that, you probably won't be there for very long, right? That's not really, that's not the way to do it. Um, you have to first be a servant. And he said that those who are first will be last. Those who are last will be first. Which, once again, is like, what? That's weird. It is so opposite of what the world says. So if you think about it, the Bible is actually a pretty revolutionary book. I mean, it has a lot of things in there that we have to really work to get our minds around. But it's important that we do that because it's only through renewing our minds to what God says and to his principles about the kingdom that we begin to change ourselves and our own communities. 
Do you think that Philemon setting Onesimus free, giving him his freedom, and treating him like a brother would have changed the people around him? Would it have made other people with slaves think about it? I think so. It's those little bitty things that start adding up. It's those little bitty changes in your thinking. When you start saying, you know, if somebody is saved, I can't look at them. I have to look at them as somebody who's like me. And I'm not a slave. So, huh. And it makes people start thinking, and it makes them start changing their minds a little bit at a time. And eventually, we are changed. If you think about where your thinking is now, compare that to where it was 20 years ago. Hopefully, you'll be able to look at it and say, wow, I've really, I've learned a lot. Or I've, I have a lot of different things that I didn't understand before. Because as we start renewing our minds and we start really looking in God's word and seeing what he wants us to do and be, then it starts changing our lives. And those changes make us into a different person, right? That's exactly what happens. But we have to understand what he's asking us to do. So one of the things that I think we have to do is see the worth in every person. Because even before we're saved, you know, God sees our worth. He knows who we are on the inside. And he's really pulling for us to, to meet Jesus and have him be Lord of our lives so that that person he knows is really already on the inside will be there, that he can reach it, that we can reach the potential and the place that he has for us because he does have like plans for us. He has a path for us to take because we all contribute to the church and to the world. So it's just really important um, that we look for ways to serve others, not as slaves, but with a servant's heart. Do we, you need to look at Paul. Paul was in prison, right, when he wrote this? <laughs> so Paul was in prison a few times. Paul was stoned. Paul was shipwrecked like three times, bitten by the, the snake. He had all these things that had happened to him. And Yet, he had a servant's heart because he, you know, the, the place in the Bible where he says, should I, should I go on or should I stay? If I stay here, I can benefit you more. But wouldn't it be great to go on? He decided to stay because he wanted to help us. He wanted to write some more for those of us who are now, but also to help the churches that were developing at the time. He had a servant's heart. And it seems to me that if somebody is important and cool as Paul had a servant's heart, I probably should pursue that too. So I think it's powerful because these changes, this renewing of our mind, it really can eventually change the world. I mean, how is it that Christianity has become so prevalent around the world? I mean, when Paul was writing this, obviously there were just pockets of it because the church was just developing. 
But now we see lots and lots of places where they have churches. Obviously, there's some places that still need to be reached. But it is very powerful when you start reaching people and they start changing little bits of things in their thinking because it turns them into the people that they need to be to move the church forward. I was reading something today and it was talking about Smith Wigglesworth. And did you know he didn't start his ministry until he was 50? I mean, we look at him and we think all these things that he did and it's like, wow, that was pretty concentrated, right? It wasn't that many years. It wasn't like he had 75 years in the ministry. No, he didn't. He started at 50. But he had some pretty quick radical changes in his thinking to get him to the point where he could pray for people and he could um, get people healed and he could bring people back from the dead. It, it was an amazing thing how quickly it happened with him. And it's, it actually pointed out that when he was like walking by himself or something, he was always praying. Because he said, I don't want people to walk with me because I want to walk with God. And so he was constantly putting his face before God and he was constantly thinking about, okay, what do I need to see? What do I need to hear? And it's that seeing and that hearing that causes us to actually have changes in our thinking. And I think that Pastor is really good about bringing stuff to us on a regular basis that helps us to tweak our thinking. Yes. You might not need a big change. You might need a little change here or there. But it's those little changes that can make a big difference. And so, you know, what decision did Philemon make? The letter's in the Bible, so I'm assuming he made the right choice. But there are some places around the world where they consider Onesimus to be almost like a saint. Apparently he did go, and he helped and he helped the new church. So I'm guessing Philemon made the right decision here. And I think that the book, if you just read it on the surface, it's like, oh, this is a great little picture of forgiveness. Yeah, it is a great picture of forgiveness. But it's not just Paul and Philemon, it's God and Jesus and us also. So if you decide to read through it sometime, which I think you should, um, kind of look at it that way. Think about how this is something that really speaks to us even in the modern church because it has so many of the kingdom principles demonstrated in only 25 verses. He wrote good letters. I wish I was as good a letter writer as he was. So, um, but, I don't know. I, I've, I've come to really love the, the chapter the book is not really something that I'd ever known before. It was always like, where is Philemon? Where is Philemon? It's so small, you lose it. But now it's kind of dog-eared in my, my Bible, so it's easier for me to find. So, um, but I hope that that will be helpful to you and keep some of that in mind and think those, the renewing of our mind is incredibly important. Not just for our own lives, but also for the church because we are interconnected. Everything that we do, it's all about people. Whether we're bringing people into the church, whether we're encouraging those who are sitting beside us, um, 
whether we are out, you know, doing some sort of outreach to try to get people into the church. But it's just really important to remember that we have to keep our minds in tune with God and not in tune with the world. Just like in, in this book, Philemon was in tune with the world and Paul was asking him to break that. And I, that's a huge request. So I, I think it's worth considering what areas in our lives that we might need to break with the world also. And that's something that we have to think about on a regular basis. Not just occasionally when somebody brings it up, but in your quiet time with God, ask him. Okay, so where do I need to fix my thinking? And I think this, this book challenges us to do that in a very real way. So I hope that was useful for you. Um, as I said, I think Pastor will be back on Sunday. But um, until then, everybody have a great week.